Isn't that an incredible thought? That God cares for you and that he cares for me. That's an amazing thought to me. Well, there was a man who was having some physical issues, and his wife took him to the doctor for an examination. The doctor examined him and afterwards said to the wife, I need to see you in my office. So the wife went into the office to meet with the doctor, and as they met together, he said, your husband has a severe stress disorder. And if you don't do as exactly as I say, he probably isn't going to make it. She said, well, what am I to do, doctor? He said, well, we're going to have to eliminate all stress out of his life. So I want you to get up early in the morning, prepare his breakfast, fix him lunch, and then dinner in the evening. When he comes home from work, I want you to greet him at the door with a kiss. Don't tell him what to do. Don't give him any chores. Don't give him any bad news. Let him go in, sit down, watch television, read the newspaper. Whatever it is he wants to do, just let him do it. Because we have to eliminate the stress in his life. And above all, don't nag him. If you don't do as I say, he probably isn't going to make it. Husband and wife got in the car and they left going back home. Finally, the husband turned to his wife and said, what did the doctor say? She said, well, he said, you're probably not going to make it. (laughs) When there are problems in life, we have to deal with those problems because if we do not, they only get worse. We know that that is true physically when we have a physical issue If we do not deal with it, chances are it's going to get worse. Now, I told Dr. Reinhardt, my tendency concerning physical issues is to deny that I have a problem. That's what I do. I have a hard time confessing that I have the flu, that I have anything wrong. I said, I just have a difficulty doing that, so I deny that I have a physical issue. You're going to have to point it out to me. Because if you don't deal with it, it gets worse. Not only is that true physically, that is also true financially. If there are financial issues and they are not dealt with, they only get worse. We see that within our country today. We have a $16 trillion debt. I have no idea how much money that is. I can't fathom it. I can't understand it. I can't grasp it. $16 trillion. And we are not dealing with it because we are not dealing with it. We are adding to it over a trillion dollars every year. Do you realize that for every dollar we spend in our country, we borrow 40 cents? So if we don't deal with financial issues, they only get worse. also true spiritually. If we have a spiritual issue and we do not deal with it, then it only gets worse. Not only do issues get worse that are not dealt with, but they infect others. When there is a problem that is not dealt with, it infects other people. For instance, within the family, if you have a problem in the family, it is not dealt with, then it spreads to other family members. That is also true within the church. When there is an issue within a church and it is not dealt with, then it spreads throughout the church infecting others. Interesting to me 
As we come today to conclude Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he deals with two problems in the church, two growing problems in the church. Neither one of them sound greatly significant to us, but apparently they are. The first was laziness. There were people in the church who were not working because they believed that Jesus was coming back, so they quit work. Second was gossip. Because they were not working, they had a lot of time to be idle and became involved as busybodies. So take your Bibles, let's see. Paul concludes this letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 6. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, Paul, as you are aware by now, was always willing to address the hard issues in the church. And he begins here in verse number 6. We command you, brethren... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Six times in his letter, he uses the word command. The word command is a military term. It is an order that is handed down from a superior officer. Now, what is the command that Paul is giving He is saying, concerning these people, keep aloof from them. The phrase that is used there means to abstain or to avoid. It was used of unfurling a sail on a boat. When a boat is in the water and the wind is up, then you unfurl the sail so it can catch the wind. When the wind has died, then you furl the sail. What Paul is saying to them is that you are to pull in your sails concerning these people. He said that you are to withdraw from them. And he's speaking about these people who would not work. You are to withdraw from them. There were three 
influences, negative influences concerning work within the church. First of all, there were those Jews who believed that the only worthy work was the study of Scripture. Nothing else was worthy. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today and go to the Wailing Wall and other places, you would find people who do nothing all day except study Scripture. So, in the Jewish community, there were those people who believed the only worthy work was the study of Scripture. And then there were the Greeks. The Greeks believed that work was demeaning and that only slaves were to work. Homer, the famous poet, wrote, The gods hated men, and the way they demonstrated their hatred was to invent work and punish men by making them work. And then within the church, there were these Thessalonians who had concluded, since Jesus is coming back, and that's what they believed, since Jesus is coming back soon, there's no reason for us to work. And so they simply quit their jobs. So Paul says to the church, concerning these people who do not work, you're to withdraw from them. Stay aloof from them. Withdraw from them. Well, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, where did he get that authority to say to the people, stay aloof from these people? Look at verse number 6 again. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was his authority. He said, in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am saying to you that you withdraw from these people. Well, you might ask the question, does does God have an opinion about work? I mean, there are a lot of other things that are important. Does God have an opinion about work? Yes. As a matter of fact, he commands it. He commands that man is to work. But then you might respond, but wait, isn't work the result of the fall? Isn't that the reason that we have to work because man sinned because of the fall? No. God gave work to man before man fell. The scripture says in Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. See, that was God's plan for man from the beginning. God has always planned that man might work, that he might be productive. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's the command of the Lord. John Stott wrote, work is the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. So when we're talking about work, does God have an opinion? Yes, he commands it. Not only did he command work, but he also models work. In Exodus chapter 20, verse number 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. So according to what the Bible says, God spent six days creating this world, and then he took a day off. He took off the seventh day. So the Lord then commands work that we are supposed to work. He modeled work, and the Bible says that we glorify God through work. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I think it'll make a big difference in your life if you understand work as bringing glory to God. When you go to work tomorrow, 
If you understand that I am glorifying God, it'll make a difference in the way you do your work. When you're making a sale, when you're, when you're going through the figures, when you're typing a letter, whatever it is, understand that you are glorifying God. When you're cleaning the house, when you're sweeping the floor, when you're mopping, when you're ironing, whatever it is that you're doing, you're glorifying God. When you're writing the paper, you're glorifying God. When you're singing in the choir, you're glorifying God. When you play in the orchestra, you glorify God. When you teach a Sunday school class, you glorify God. In fact, I believe that work is so important that we will even work when we get to heaven. I used to hear people talking about going to heaven, sitting on clouds, strumming harps and all that. As a little boy, uh, I'll be honest with you, that didn't appeal a lot to me. Now, I didn't want to go to hell, but I, I wasn't sure I wanted to go to heaven either. I like music. I love music. love to hear you all sing, but I'm going to just sit around and sing all the time. Now, Steve might have a different theology than I do about that, but I think I'd be bored stiff. And then one day I was reading in the scripture, it says about talking about heaven. It says, and his servant shall serve him. I believe there's going to be work to do. I'm not sure what it is. I'll do about anything. You'll have, you know, I'll be up there mopping the floors, the golden streets or whatever. I don't care. But I want to do something and I believe that we are going to be at work. I believe we're going to be productive even when we get to heaven. So Paul addresses the issue. There is an issue here of laziness. And he says after he addresses the issue to the people, he says he provides himself, presents himself as an example for them to imitate. Look at verse number 7. For you yourselves... Know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Paul said to them, I want you to imitate me. Now young people especially, listen to me. The models you choose to pattern your life after is critically important. Really important. George Washington wrote, associate yourself with men of good quality if you esteem your reputation. For it is better to be alone than in bad company. I I would say to you students, and especially those who are maybe first or second year at the university, whenever you are invited to participate in something you know to be wrong, you're better off staying in the dorm alone. It's better to be alone than in bad company. William Gladstone wrote, choose wisely your companions. Are you listening? Choose wisely your companions. For a young man's companions, more than his food or clothes, his home or his parents, make him what he is. The model that you choose to pattern your life after is extremely important. So Paul presents himself as an example in verse number 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, what is the value of work? We're talking about work. It seems like a strange subject. That's, I'm not, the only reason I'm dealing with it is because it's in there. And Paul brought it up. That's the way he concludes his letter. Why is it important? Now, let's think about it. Why is work important? What is its value? Well, for one thing, it helps protect from depression. You know, when you're working, you don't worry nearly as much. 
I can work all day long and do just fine. And when I go home at night and lie down, I am aware of every ache and pain that I have ignored all day long. And I can tell you're the same way. Why? Because that's what I'm concentrating on. But when I'm at work, I'm not focusing there. When I am working, I am not worrying so much about my own mortality. If I'm working, I'm not worried about dying. Ecclesiastes 5.20 says, For he will not often consider the years of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. When you're working, you don't worry so much about the future. Because you're trying to make ends meet today. So what's the importance of work? Just practically. It helps us, helps protect us from depression. It helps protect us from temptation. Chuck Colson and Jack Eckerd wrote Why America Doesn't Work. They wrote, in the early 1800s, farmers didn't have the time for pornography. They were too exhausted to riot. Their work kept them from all kinds of iniquity. Most of us can't handle very much idleness without getting ourselves into trouble. Isn't that right? I mean, the more idle, my grandmother used to say, idle hands are devil's workshop, whatever it was she said. It was something like that. Well, that, that's what they are saying here. When we have all this idle time, we get in trouble. Have you been watching the riots in the Middle East? I mean, I'm watching it's 3 o'clock in the morning and they're riding. 4 o'clock in the morning and they're riding. And I'm sitting there thinking, what in heaven's name are you doing out there at 4 o'clock in the morning? I promise you if they had to go to work at 7 o'clock, they wouldn't be out there riding at 3 o'clock. <laughs> you see, work is important because it protects us from temptation. Someone said when a mule is kicking, it cannot pull. And when it is pulling, it cannot kick. So working protects us from temptation, protects us from poverty. There are those who are far more concerned about the 1% than working to become a part of the 1%. So what does Paul say in verse number 10? For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, one will not work, neither let him eat. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the truth is it is not difficult to, uh, to recognize someone who is lazy. And I know some of you think, yeah, he's seated next to me. No, it's, it's their characteristics. Of, one is that they procrastinate. A lazy person procrastinates. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. So the lazy person, the sluggard then, is someone when it's time to plant, puts it off until it's too late for a harvest. They procrastinate. Secondly, they're not dependable. Don't ever count on a lazy person. If someone is lazy, don't count on them doing something. The Bible says in Proverbs 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. And then the lazy person is also neglectful. They neglect doing what needs to be done. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. I pass by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. So what does Paul say? If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. 
Folks, the truth is, whenever we don't work, it causes all kinds of problems. Problems at home, problems at work. You know this, if you, if you work for a company or something, if you have someone within the company that does not perform, does not work, does not produce, that person becomes a demotivation to everybody. You know that on the team, on a, on a football team. If you have a football team and, and you have a, a player that is not carrying his load, doing what he's supposed to do, it's a demotivation to everybody else. There's all kinds of problems that come as a result. It, it brings about pressure. Years ago, I was writing a message on... Um, on divorce, I called the courthouse and asked the question, why are there so many divorces? And the person with whom I was speaking said the primary reason is because of financial pressure. You see, when you're not working and you're not making a living, then it puts tremendous pressure on the marriage relationship and then it brings about poverty. So Paul talks about the consequences that are involved there. So he says, I am an example for you to imitate, imitate someone who is a good example, have a good model. Then Paul says to them, and don't grow weary in verse number 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary. Barnes says the Greek means properly to turn out a coward, then to be faint-hearted, to despond. As I understand that, these people had become wearied because they were undisciplined. Verse number 11 For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. Barnes says the word denotes conduct that is any way contrary to the rules of Christ. So there are, there were people in the Thessalonian church at that time who were living contrary to the word of God. He says they were undisciplined. They were living their lives contrary to the word of God. And what does he say there in verse number 11? He says, but acting like busybodies. All right, so they are not working. They have all of this idle time. And the scripture says that as a result, they become busybodies. Barnes says they meddle with the affairs of others, a thing which they who have nothing of their own to busy themselves about will be very likely to do. As a result, Paul says they were causing a disruption in the church. Now, these people to whom he is referring, were disrupting the church. So Paul says they have to be dealt with. These people in the church, disrupting the church, have to be dealt with. Verse number 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. All right, let's think a little bit. Those people who disrupt the fellowship of the church, Paul says they have to be dealt with. Well, what are those things that cause disruption within the fellowship of the church? Sometimes it's personal differences. You know, sometimes just Mark doesn't get along with Rod and nobody gets along with Houston. You know, I mean, there's just, you know, people just don't get along. Some, I mean, the truth is sometimes even in the church, some people just get sideways with each other. Okay, what are we to do? If there's someone in this church, you don't like them, what do you do? Matthew 18 tells us. Matthew 18 says that you go to your brother. Now, you don't go to somebody else. If you go to somebody else, now you're a busybody. So he says you go to your brother. For the purpose of gaining your brother, not winning the argument. That's what he said. So when there are personal differences in the church, that's normal. 
but we need to handle it correctly. Sometimes the disruption is a result of doctrinal error. When there is doctrinal error, the Bible says that you are to teach them the truth of Scripture. If they do not return, if they do not uh, turn away from their doctrinal error, the Bible says then you rebuke them in their error. Paul said in Titus 1.13, wherefore rebuke them sharply. He says if they still don't repent, he says then you are to avoid them. Sometimes there's problems in the church as a result of a believer being overtaken by sin. In Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such in the spirit of meekness. And the word restore literally means the uh, repair or the setting of a broken bone. So someone in the church gets involved in sin. What are we to do? The Bible says restore them. Look at David. David committed adultery. He was restored. Look at Simon Peter. He denied the Lord. He was restored. So the Bible says that we are to restore them. But if they're unwilling to be restored, then the Bible says they are to be rejected. Titus 3.10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. But all the while remembering, look at verse number 15, because this is key to it. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When there is someone within the family of faith that is causing problems within the family, the Bible says that we are to deal with it, remembering that this person is a brother, not an enemy. And then he concludes, and the Lord be with you, verse number 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace. In every circumstance, the Lord be with you all. Here's what I believe that he's saying. He has been speaking about these problems that were in the Thessalonian church. He gave instruction. There's no doubt, but he gave very clear instruction for them to follow. And he is saying that as you follow the instruction, that God will grant you peace. If the individual has peace, then the congregation can have peace. He says that the Lord will grant you his presence. That's what it says there in verse 16. As we are doing what God has called us to, he is saying there's a problem, has to be addressed according to the word. He says if you do so, then the Lord promises his presence. And then verse number 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God will grant you grace. It is by grace that we are saved. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourself, gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. It is through grace that we are saved, and it is through grace that we succeed. If we are to be the people of God, if you are to be the people of God in your home, in the church, in the community, wherever you are, you are to be the people of God. The Bible says that God will give you peace, his presence, and grace. Let me conclude. Issues have to be addressed. A lot of times we like, I mean, none of us like confrontation. So we want to sweep issues away, not dealing with them in our families, wherever it happens to be. Issues have to be addressed. But Paul is saying that the Lord is with us as we address them. And then this is the thing I think that he would conclude with. As we live our lives, order our lives according to God's word, always looking for the return of Christ. That's what he talks about in Thessalonians. Always looking for the return of Christ. Are you ready for the Lord to come back?
You know, one of the reasons that I love this church is I really believe that you take the, the, the Word of God seriously. And one of the great joys in my heart, and I hear this so often, is how much the people in this church love and support each other. That blesses me that you are the people of God here at First Baptist Church. Are you ready for the Lord to come back? Because the Bible says he's coming again. Our gracious Father, thank you for your word, for your instruction. And Lord, I pray that we might live our lives in such a way that if we stand before you this afternoon, that we would hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Protect us from evil, protect us from temptation. Lord, may we glorify you in everything we do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, the invitation is to you that you might come and do so. Staff members would receive you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing. You come, I'll greet you as you do.